you have a copy of the scriptures with you, please turn to John chapter 1. Surprise. Not really. We've been making our way slowly but surely through this first chapter of the fourth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke all wrote from similar points of view. I think it's fair that they wrote from more of a historical perspective. John's different. Apostle John wrote from a more theological perspective. And that is nowhere more obvious than in those first 18 verses of the gospel here in that prologue. His purpose for writing, though, is expressed in John chapter 20, verse 31. But these things have been written so that, it's a purpose statement, here we go, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is precisely why John wrote this account of the life and ministry of Jesus. So that you, and we can take that personally, so that you and I can believe or may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And like I said, that's exactly where John begins his gospel account. Those first 18 verses we refer to as the prologue. And the Apostle John uses those opening verses to introduce us to the deity of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 9, he was the true light, which enlightens every man. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled or pitched his tent in our backyard among us. Verse 18, the only begotten God, he has explained him. And his name? Verse 17, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. There you have it. John's theological framework or explanation for the person of Jesus Christ. The theological framework supporting Christ's deity. God dressed in human flesh. The eternal word incarnate. Fully God and fully man. So again, John's purpose for writing this account is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Or in the language of John chapter 1, that we would receive him or believe in his name. And according to chapter 20, verse 31, and that believing you might have life in his name. That's eternal life. Or life the way God intended it to be lived, both now and forever. Chapter 1 refers to it simply as becoming children of God. And folks, that's a, a sobering thought. The implications are sobering. Our eternal destiny hangs in the balance. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me 
has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Those aren't my words. The Apostle John didn't say that. He's actually quoting Jesus Christ, God dressed in human flesh. Let me read it again from a more contemporary or dynamic translation. It is urgent that you listen carefully to this. Anyone here who believes that I am what I am saying right now and aligns himself with the Father, who has in fact put me in charge, has at this very moment the real, lasting life and is no longer condemned to be an outsider. This person has taken a giant step from the world of the dead to the world of the living. The NIV translates that last phrase, has crossed over from death to life. I can't be sure where everyone in this room is in their spiritual journey. I just don't know. But what I do know is that you're here this morning. And I don't think that's an accident. I think... We're here by divine appointment. So hear this. Jesus wants us to receive him and to believe in his name. The Apostle John wrote this gospel because he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. And the Rock Community Church exists for two primary purposes. Well, maybe three. Proclamation, demonstration, and can I add celebration? I think so. We are here to individually and collectively proclaim the gospel and teach the word of God. Secondly, we are here to live lives that increasingly display this unique relationship that we enjoy with God. And thirdly, we exist to celebrate. Celebrate God for who he is and for what he is doing in and through us, his people. And so if you're here this morning and you have never received him or believed in his name, I want to give you that opportunity this morning. And ultimately, we all understand that unless God draws us to himself, it's not going to happen. None of us are capable of figuring this out on our own. Nor can we decide for for someone else. But God does use people. People like John the Baptist. People like you and me. 
to be witnesses, to help people receive him and to believe in his name. To be witnesses, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, and to be ambassadors, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 20. So as witnesses, or as a witness, allow me just to share three simple steps to believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Step number one, admit. Admit that what the Bible says about you is absolutely true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. There are no exceptions. Theologically, it is referred to as the total depravity of man. We have fallen short of that standard of perfection that God requires for a relationship with him. End of discussion. Oh, and by the way, there's absolutely nothing that you and I can do about that. We need to own that reality. Admit that you are a sinner and repent of that sin. Turn away from sinful activities. Want nothing to do with them. Step number one, admit. Step number two, believe. Believe that Jesus was who he claimed he was, did what the scriptures say he did, and will do what he promised he will do. Believe that with all of your heart. The Apostle Paul wrote that we need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's all of that. In all of his fullness, God dressed in human flesh. Believe with all your heart. Admit and believe. And then the third step is confess in prayer something like this. Father, please forgive me. I am a sinner in need of your forgiveness. I realize that there's nothing I can do to earn it or to deserve it. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he died to pay the price for my sin so that now I can be clothed in his righteousness and become acceptable in your sight. Help me to begin to live my life in a way that pleases you. And not just for myself or what I think is right or what is in the best interest of me and my family. Please, thank you, help. It's just that simple and it's that difficult. But if you're here this morning and you're finding that kind of prayer resonating deep within your heart, I'd love to have an opportunity to talk to you at the end of the service today. Or maybe you know someone here that has a vital relationship with Jesus Christ who you know will be able to help you take that next step 
toward establishing a relationship with your Heavenly Father. I encourage you to do that. And if you're not ready to make that kind of decision, well, that's okay, because we're only halfway through chapter 1 of 21. you got a long way to go. But let me encourage you not to put this decision off any longer than you need to. This is not one you want to procrastinate on. There are no guarantees in this life. And certainly, this is one decision that we need to make. And this is precisely why the Apostle John sat down and wrote this gospel. He is hoping that this gospel account will move people from unbelief to belief. And to facilitate that kind of transition, he calls on witnesses, people who will witness to the deity of Jesus Christ. And the first witness to be called was John the Baptist. And we looked at John the Baptist last week and we examined his testimony that came as a result of, in response to questions that he was being asked by a delegation who'd been sent out from the city of Jerusalem to investigate this man and his ministry. In John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28, this was day one of three days of testimony. And on day one, John was responding to questions about his identity and his authority to baptize. And John turned those personal questions, you'll remember, he'll, he turned them into opportunities to point to Jesus And so their questions became invitations to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that was the main idea of last week's sermon. Testimonies that point to Jesus are invitations to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So last week we left this auditorium with a, with a challenge to view personal questions as opportunities to talk about him. This morning, we want to focus on day two and three of John the Baptist's testimony. Testimonies that compelled him to, or were compelled because of two separate encounters with Jesus. And rather than just consider the content of his testimony, I'd like to identify some best practices that are exemplified by John the Baptist right here in John chapter 1 that can help us become more effective witnesses and ambassadors for Christ. But before we go there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. If you're able, please stand beginning at verse 19 of John chapter 1. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? 
Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing, if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a privilege to be able to address you with such intimacy and affection. Forgive us for those times when we are found taking advantage of your mercy and your grace. Enable enable us to balance this accessibility with what the preacher declared, to fear God and keep his commands. Jesus himself said, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I too will love them and show myself to them. Father, teach us your commands. Give us teachable spirits, receptive hearts, and determined wills. Keep us from fear and discouragement. By your spirit and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I remember landing at Briarcrest Bible Institute the end of the summer in August 1979. As freshmen, we were required to show up a few days earlier to go through some training in orientation. On the final day of orientation, we were partnered up, assigned a a block of addresses, and shipped off to 
Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, about 15 miles due east on the Trans-Canada Highway. The assignment, door-to-door evangelism. And granted, we had received some training, but now it was time to go live. I can remember walking up and knocking on those doors, wondering, I wonder how many times these people have been harassed in the last 50 years. Because there were probably between two and 300 freshmen that were sent out. And, and Moose Jaw in those days, it was only about 25,000 people. Interesting. I have to admit that it wasn't one of my favorite activities that I've ever done. But I do think that we all need a little push now and again, don't you? When it comes to this sharing our faith. The fear of rejection, it's real. And as I look around, uh, I don't think we're, well, I just think we're living in a more and more intolerant society. And as I look into the future, I, I can't say that it's going to get any better or any easier. In fact, I think it's going to get harder. Often it's not easy to speak up. It's easier to be silent. But we're called to be witnesses, to be ambassadors for for Jesus Christ. And for this reason, I think an examination of John the Baptist's testimony on days two and three will prove helpful. You see, proximity promotes proclamation. Proximity promotes proclamation. Jesus' presence compels us to testify about him. Look at verse 29 again. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, when he saw Jesus coming to him, John testified. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, that sounds like an invitation to me. John was inviting them to look for themselves. Behold is one of those words that we're going to come across again and again in the Gospel of John. Here, in verse 29, now look down to verse 36. And he looked at Jesus and he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then verse 47 of chapter 1. Jesus saw Nathanael come to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed. That's three times in the first chapter. He goes on to use it 15 times in this book. And it's not a command. It's not a command, but rather a wow statement. A wow statement that invites others to investigate the source of wonderment for themselves. 
When, G- when was the last time that someone investigated Jesus because of a wow statement coming from your lips or from mine? Let me say something about the title that John uses here, the Lamb of God. It has generated a lot of discussion amongst Bible scholars over the years. Some have even questioned if John the Baptist actually said these words. They propose that it's actually the Apostle John writing some 50 years later that, are put, that is putting these words in John's mouth. They feel that John the Baptist's understanding of the Messiah would, would in no way allow him to make this kind of a, of a statement. In fact, according to one New Testament scholar I was reading this week, he claims that the impression left by the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke, was that John the Baptist was anticipating a Messiah, and I quote, to come in terrible judgment and clean up the sin of Israel. That doesn't sound like a lamb to me. However, other scholars have pointed to three historic events that would have immediately come into the Jewish mind when they heard John make this claim. The first is found in Genesis chapter 22. Famous story, you'll remember it where Abraham was asked to sacrifice Isaac, his son, his one and only son. And Isaac asked his dad, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? To which Abraham replied, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The Jewish mind would have went there. Or it could have went to Exodus chapter 12, where the Passover lamb is described. You'll remember they were under oppressive Egyptian slavery. And God decided to deliver his people through a a series of miraculous signs. The final sign was that the firstborn in every household would die. They were instructed to take a lamb, slaughter it, Take the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lentil. And then the angel of death would pass over that household. Certainly, that could have come to a Jewish mind. And then the third possibility is in Isaiah chapter 53. If you want to turn there for just a moment. Verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah chapter 53. This is the prophet's words to the nation of Israel. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, And like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. Prediction of what the Messiah was going to be like. John MacArthur offers the following support. 
The concept of a sacrificial lamb was a familiar one to Jewish people. All through Israel's history, God had revealed clearly that sin and separation from him could be, could be removed only by a blood sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 affirms it. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. And the Apostle Peter explaining to believers how in the world their redemption is possible, writes these words, with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. First Peter chapter 1, verse 19. The last word goes to MacArthur again. Though Israel sought a Messiah who would be a prophet, king, and conqueror, God had to send them a lamb, and he did. Behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And I should point out that that who takes away the sin of the world is not teaching universalism. Universalism is that false teaching that says that, you know what, we're all going to be saved in the end. And it's just not true. The scriptures, in fact, indicate that the majority of humanity will take the wide way and spend eternity in hell because of their insistent and persistent rebellion against God. And how sad is that? Especially in light of what this verse is teaching. The Lamb of God is providing relief from sin. Forgiveness is possible. It's available to any and all who will respond appropriately to God's demonstration of love for you. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Admit, believe, confess. As witnesses and ambassadors for Christ, invite people to come and look for themselves. Or in the words of the psalmist, taste and see that the Lord is good. John's testimony continues in verse 30. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. John assured his listeners that he meant what he said and said what he meant. This is not the first time that we've heard this expression from the lips of John that, that Jesus pre-existed him and therefore was higher ranked than him. Look back at verse 15 of chapter 1. John testified about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. There you have it. Jesus Christ existed before John. In fact, all three synoptic Gospels, all three of them, include this statement. 
So that's four for four, which kind of suggests that this was a common declaration given by John the Baptist. As witnesses and ambassadors for Christ, assure other people by word and deed that you meant what you said and said what you meant. You see, our stories, they need to be consistent, regardless of the audience that we have. Avoid embellishments, additions, or edits to impress others. When presenting your testimony, mean what you say and say what you mean. Verse 31, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John wasn't making excuses or trying to avoid accountability or responsibility. He was just speaking the truth, that he had limited understanding concerning the identity of Jesus Christ as Messiah. And John was not able to figure this out on his own. This was not a reflection of his superior IQ. And as witnesses and ambassadors for Christ, we need to be prepared to admit our limitations. None of us are omniscient. And you know what? We don't have to be. Verse 32, John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. John told them exactly what he saw with his own eyes. The words of that old hymn, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his Spirit washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. As witnesses and ambassadors for Christ, tell your story. You are the expert when it comes to sharing how Christ has and is impacting your life. No one else can tell it better than you. But it has to be a a true story. It has to be a personal encounter with Jesus. There's no plagiarizing allowed here. But tell your story. Verse 33, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. John confessed his dependence on the special revelation of God. And as witnesses and ambassadors for Christ, we need to point to the scriptures. Confess and demonstrate your dependence on the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient word of God as the ultimate source of our understanding. This book is God's special revelation preserved for our benefit. This is where we encounter Jesus. Our testimonies must be rooted in Scripture. They have to be. Verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. John expressed his personal conviction. There was no doubt in his mind this is the Son of God. As witnesses or ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we need to speak with conviction. 
Paulie Little, a number of years ago, wrote two little books that I remember. One was titled, Know What You Believe. The second one, Know Why You Believe. Those are the things that we need to include in our testimonies as we're sharing with other people. Things that we're absolutely convinced are true. But do it with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 3, 15. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, So when John saw, when, when he saw Jesus coming to him, John testified. And for believers, God's omnipresence is empowering. Turn over with me to the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 19. Jesus has come to his disciple and says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Then he continues, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Did you notice that last phrase? And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Immediately after commissioning them to make disciples, which is going to include being witnesses and ambassadors for Christ, Jesus promised his enduring presence. Interesting. Remember the text I preached back when you invited Cynthia and I to come and candidate back in March? I chose Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, because Israel was in a state of transition, and I thought the rock was in a season of transition as well. In verse 9 of Joshua chapter 1, the Lord is speaking directly to Joshua, Moses' replacement. And this is what he says. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Notice the contrast. Strength and courage versus discouragement and fear. And the deciding factor, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God's enduring presence is empowering. It keeps us from the paralysis of fear and discouragement. It provides strength and courage. Hear the words of the psalmist. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light becomes night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For believers, God's inescapable presence is empowering. Of course, if you're a not yet believer or you're a believer with habitual or hidden sin in your life, 
Well, then God's omnipresence should strike fear in your life, in the deepest part of your being. There are only two options, God's forgiveness or God's judgment. But for the, but for the believer, God's omnipresence is empowering. And so abide in Christ, because abiding in Christ empowers us to testify about him. Turn to, over into John chapter 15. We'll come to this eventually and spend a, an extensive amount of time here. But in John chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you, me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire where they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep your commands, if you keep my commands and you will, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that you, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let me to highlight just a couple of verses for our purposes this morning. Verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Abide in him by spending time in his word, exposing yourself to this book. Because as you do that, then God's word spends time in us. And that's where we become effective. Verse 10, abide in him by being determined to live an obedient life. If you keep my commands, you'll abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commands. You see, we need to wake up every morning determined to live an obedient life. And it's a battle. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 6, we get instructed by Paul to put on the full armor of God. God does provide the resources. Portia Nelson provides us with a good reminder of the the challenge that we face on a daily basis in a poem entitled, There is a Hole in My Sidewalk. Have you heard that before? It's an autobiography in five short chapters. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to get out. Chapter 2, 
I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend not to see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there. I still fall in. It's a habit. But my eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. When he saw Jesus coming to him, John testified. For believers, God's omnipresence is empowering. Abiding in Christ empowers us to testify about him because we are in his proximity. And you see, proximity promotes proclamation. Jesus' presence compels us to testify for the benefit of others. Notice verses 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples He looked out at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. When he looked at Jesus, as he walked by, standing with two of his disciples, John testified, Behold, the Lamb of God. We've heard that before. But a couple of quick observations here. John's message remained consistent whether in public, speaking to the crowd, or in private, speaking with two of his, standing with two of his disciples, John's testimony remained the same. His eyes were fixed on the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The second observation is repeat, repeat, repeat again. I've shared this piece of communication advice before. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them. And then tell them what you told them. Now look at verse 37 of John chapter 1. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Is that a little sad? Try to put yourself in... In John's shoes, for just a moment, you're standing there with two of your disciples watching Jesus pass by. And you point, behold, the Lamb of God. And suddenly, you're left standing alone. You're looking at the backs of two of your disciples as they fall in behind Jesus. Flip the page over to chapter 3, beginning at verse 25. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Verse 25. Verse 26, 
And they came to John and said to him, this is his disciples, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptized and, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless he has been given, from, given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase. I must decrease. So in fact, John is feeling a sense of fulfillment as those two disciples fall in behind Jesus. God's blessings are meant to be shared. Have you seen that poster with these words on it? When God blesses you financially, don't raise your standard of living. Raise your standard of giving. And I think that doesn't just apply to our financial well-being. It applies to everything. We are blessed to be a blessing. Turn with me to the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. This is really the founding of the nation of Israel. Genesis chapter 12, right at the beginning of the chapter. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Blessed to be a blessing. Jesus tells a parable in John chapter 12. Listen as I read. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have enough room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. Then I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend... You have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, you'll die this very night. Then who will get everything you've worked for? When God blesses us above and beyond, bigger burns are not always the solution. God is our merciful Father and source of all comfort. He comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others when they are troubled. We will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. Imitate Christ because imitating Christ enables us to share God's blessings with others for their benefit. Jesus' personal mission statement in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That's it. That's the pattern we're to imitate. 
For we've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2, 21. Let me finish up with the words from the Apostle Paul. As presented in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul's explanation of the deity of Christ. Just preceding that, we read these verses. Read these words. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Imitating imitating Christ enables us to be a blessing to others for their benefit. Proximity promotes proclamation. Proximity promotes proclamation. Jesus' presence compels us to testify about him and for the benefit of others. John testified when he saw Jesus coming to him and when he was standing with two of his disciples and saw Jesus passing by. Abide in Christ and imitate Christ puts us in Jesus' proximity, so that we will be compelled to proclaim the gospel, to be witnesses, to be ambassadors. John's testimony provides us with eight best practices for sharing our faith. Let me just run through them as a review. Invite others to look for themselves. Secondly, assure others that you meant what you said and said what you meant. Number three, admit your limitations. Number four, tell your story. Number five, point to the scriptures. Number six, state your convictions. Number seven, offer a consistent message. And number eight, repeat, repeat, and repeat. Let's pray. Father, thank you for John the Baptist and for this record of his life and ministry. Thank you that we're able to examine how he lived and how he testified of Jesus Christ. And we can learn from his example. So we pray that these words would shape the way we think and that our thoughts would determine our behaviors, that we begin to act in ways that would make us effective witnesses and ambassadors for you. By your power and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together.
Thank you again for coming and being part of our worship service this morning. If you're a 